also a fun topic in that uh, the way the Buddha described this psychological factor was kind of fun. And um, I'll read you what he said. In the Kavata Sutta, the Buddha says, when one has achieved a mind that is uh, purified, free of phone ringings <laughs> and uh, agitation, when one has achieved an esteemed state, one can read the minds of others. One can read the minds of others. Another sutta says, uh, one should live observing the mind from within and external minds. So, what does this mean, reading other beings' minds? Well, actually, although we all conjure up probably associations with ESP and telepathy and magical powers and tricks where somebody says, think of a number or a color or something like that, the Buddha doesn't mean any of that nonsense. Uh, what the Buddha actually means, he continues on to explain. He says, what does this mean? Reading the mind of another, one knows when they are lustful, aversive, delusional, obsessed, aware or distracted, agitated or peaceful. So the Buddha is not saying that you can just think of a number and I'll have any clue what it is. Nor, you know, like those tricks where somebody, what do they call them, psychics or something, they say, I see in your life there's somebody whose name begins with M and a body of water. You know, they say things that are really general. And, of course, everybody can relate. Now, what the Buddha is saying is that as we develop a spiritual practice in our life, what happens is we develop the ability to discern the underlying emotional states of others in a way that's far more perceptive. In today's therapeutic environments, psychologists refer to this skill as called, and I'll be referring to it as mentalizing. Mentalizing means the ability to know that other people have differing mind states than our own. Different beliefs, and are seeking different goals and are in different emotional states than our own. Now, it might sound kind of obvious that this is the case, but actually this is an ability that has different levels, and also it's something that people can very often forget in the way we relate to other people. So, here's the uh, basic test. You have a three-year-old or a four-year-old or a five-year-old, and you put them in front of a puppet show, and the puppet A comes on, and it has a marble, and it shows the marble to the kid, and then it places the marble in a basket that's on the stage, and then the puppet goes away. Puppet A disappears. Puppet B comes on stage and moves the marble from the basket to a jar. Puppet B walks off the stage. Puppet, B, puppet A, the first puppet, returns. And at this point, the researcher will ask the child, tell me, where will the puppet look for its marble? Now, 
hopefully as you are over five years of age, you will know that the puppet will look for it, the marble in the place where it left it, in the basket. The puppet will have no way of knowing that another puppet moved it into the jar. This is the very basic test that they give children to find out if they've developed the ability to mentalize. A child up to the age of about four will almost invariably fail this test. That's because a child up to four lives in what's called an egocentric state of mind. They don't understand that other people have different awarenesses, different beliefs, different emotional states. But something quite important happens between the age of four and five. The child becomes capable of mentalizing and acquires a skill that no other species has. They've tested species, they've come up with different tests, and only a few chimpanzees have even passed the very basic mentalizing skill, but there's a lot of belief that they've passed it not with an understanding that there's different mind states, that they simply are follow are passing the test in another way. Either way, no other species can pass the advanced mentalizing test that they give to kids when they're around 10 or 11. The more advanced test goes something like this. A burglar has stolen jewelry from a house and puts the jewelry in its pocket. No one can see. The burglar leaves the house and walks away and while walking away, drops a glove from its back, from the burglar's back pocket. A policeman picks up the glove and says, hey you, stop. What does the burglar think? Now, certain kids will think that, again, will not pick up all the information and will just assume that the burglar will say, oh, the policeman found my glove. The more advanced the capability of mentalizing, the more somebody can realize the very obvious possibility that the burglar might think that his crime has been detected by the policeman and that the policeman is trying to arrest him. So skills of mentalizing become acquired and there's no other species that is capable of that skill. As we move on into adult territories of mentalizing, which we'll talk about, there's actual tests called the MSCEIT, which can pretty accurately rec see how talented we are in seeing beneath the behaviors and statements of other people to understand what their underlying emotional states are. And this happens all the time. If you've ever been in a relationship, you are probably aware that sometimes people present in different uh, they present in one mood or state, but beneath it, there are levels of sadness, fear, anxiety, worry, concern that they're not yet trusting that they want to reveal to others. Sometimes people can say they're okay, but we can see from the catch in their voice, from the sadness in the corner of the eyes, from the body state that they're not okay, they're not fine, that something's going on. So the ability to mentalize is what 
has given us our great survival advantage. If you're capable of understanding other beings' mental states, you can compete with them better for resources. Plus, you can also take care of the people in your life far better. You can develop far secure bonds. And studies show that people who mentalize well actually are far more successful in building long-term relationships, friendships, and generally find themselves far more um, uh, fulfilled in their lives. Mentalizing is everywhere in our lives. It's what not only makes our species different, it also what it very much glues us together. When we love someone, we have to mentalize. When we are a parent, we have to be willing to put aside whatever we're feeling, whatever mood we're in, and discern what the emotional state of the child is in. When, if you're a DJ, heaven forbid. No, there's nothing wrong with DJs. As long as you're not, what's his name, Skrillex? So if you're a DJ except for Skrillex... Uh, you have, to cure, you have to mentalize. You don't just put on music that you like. You put on music that other people you believe would like and want to dance. So you have to understand that your tastes might be different from the tastes of the people who come to your DJ thing. Uh, <laughs> if you gift someone, you give them a gift, what are you doing? You're hopefully putting aside your tastes and what you think everybody should have, and you're asking yourself, oh, what is this other person interested in? What do they care about? And even though you might not give uh, an expletive, uh, this is for uh, broadcast, but even though you might not give an expletive over, uh, over motorcycles, I don't, but uh, some, I have to there's uh, uh, somebody in my life that really loves them. And so every gift I give them has something to do with motorcycles. And I'm there buying books and T-shirts and motorcycle gear. And it's the last thing that I could care about in the planet. Uh, so it's the key to our strong, successful connections. It's how we heal. When somebody is suffering and they disclose their emotions to us, what we need to do is mentalize, to put aside what's going on in our life, our busyness, our struggles, and open and really take in the entirety of what they're conveying so that we can mirror back their emotional states, which is what heals emotional wounds in life. That's the process. The first process, if you want to heal an emotional wound, is feel it, hold it, Express it through art, journaling, but then find somebody who's capable of mentalizing and disclose it, showing through your body movements, your tone of voice, your sadness, even your words, what is being felt. When somebody mirrors that, that's how we achieve what's known as emotion regulation. The Buddha spoke about this quite frequently in the Mita Sutta and other worlds. So there are different levels. In fact, I'd say there are four levels of mentalizing. 
The first is well known in uh, neuroscience. It's called mind blindness. And there are certain people that in certain parts of their life or with certain conditions are very, very poor at having any clue that other people have different moods and different agendas than their own. One out of every three people using Facebook, I believe, has mind blindness. <laughs> the people who write enigmatic statements on Facebook that nobody could have a possible clue what they're referring to and assume that simply because it's happening to them that we should all know. Have you ever seen those posts? Like, I mean, really? Exclamation point? <laughs> to which I always want to say, you are potentially on the cusp of what four-year-olds are when they realize that other beings have different mind states. But you're not quite there yet. Interestingly, and this is uh, people who are suffering from narcissistic personality disorder really struggle with mentalizing others. There is a second stage which is known as implicit uh, Mentalizing. These are people who know that other people have different mind states, but base their what they believe other people's mind states to be on assumptions and intuition rather than on actual any research or investigation. Some people, for instance, if they grew up with parents who are aloof and abandoning, will project assumptions that all their sexual partners or friends will be aloof and abandoning. Or B... If they go through a breakup and their partner was judgmental, they'll assume that every new person they date will be judgmental. In other words, based on specific life experiences, rather than investigating people afresh, they simply assume that other people will be completely consistent with the dominant people from their past, the dominant attachment figures. This is not healthy mentalizing. This is what leads to all kinds of relational breakdowns when we assume that simply because we've been through a painful experience that everybody else in the world will act consistently with our parents or our exes or with an abandoning friend. The third level of mentalizing is when people practice what's known as cognitive mentalizing where they ask questions, they actually look at the body language, the tone of voice, the nonverbal cues, and uh, they put together an informed picture, not based on assumptions or projection, but are actually based on real research and investigation. And then there's a quite rare fourth level, which is what therapists do, which is they actively detect signs of completely hidden, repressed emotions that are not even discernible by most people. And that takes uh, uh, an enormous scale to be able to essentially find the repressed that's hidden lurking beneath all the statements we make. Now, nobody's asking us to attain that level, but if we can aim for cognitive mentalizing, it will not only benefit our relationships and our happiness and our fulfillment in life, but it will also benefit the happiness and healing of the people that we care about. So how do we go about doing this? One, 
successful mentalizing depends on dropping the life stressors that are distracting and make it very difficult to mentalize. There's actually a study by the, a journal of neuroscience where they compared the ability of people who are stressed out in mentalizing, which means discerning the underlying emotions of the people in their life, and they find out that the degree of stressors that we have, and these are normal day-to-day -day stressors such as um, being late, having deadlines, frustrating events, uh, running into money difficulties, the normal day-to-day -day stressors. It's not like we have to suddenly clear them out of our life, but we have to be capable of putting them aside long enough to turn towards the people we love and care about and open to their experience. So how do we do that? First, we relax the body and the breath. We don't mentalize the people we care about, the people that we want to connect with by just uh, trying to uh, first uh, just push aside with our minds. What we do is relax the out-breath, soften the belly, relax the shoulders, relax the face. Uh, my work is uh, generally every day with four different people. Before I teach, I do one-on-one -on -one work, and very often the people I'm working with are very activated by very painful experiences. And I don't... The way I show up and stay present and listen for the... for most of each hour is... I keep relaxing the body and taking in and empathizing what I what needs to be felt, but relaxing around it. So if somebody's very sad, I might feel some of that sadness in my chest, but I'll relax the arms, the legs, the shoulders, the face. If somebody's very angry, I'll feel some of that in my arms and in my jaw, but I'll relax other parts of the body. I'll keep my breath extended so I can stay present if I'm uncomfortable, what I'll do is I'll intervene and I will stop them from expressing their emotional states and that's not of any use to them. So to show up, I have to be physically relaxed. That's the key. To show up for people in our life, we have to breathe, relax the body, settle in comfortably. Now, the second a uh, factor that interrupts the capability of mentalizing is what's called relational stress. If we've gone through a breakup, if somebody we know and care about has died, if somebody has, uh, a friend has abandoned or rejected us, if uh, we've suddenly gone through a traumatic firing at work and we've lost access to a lot of our friends, if there's been a real separation stress in our lives, in those situations, it's best for us to heal those wounds before we try to mentalize with other people. Because what people do when they're suffering from relational stress is they tend to project their woundings onto other people. It's known as projective identification. For instance, if I feel wounded by a friend who's not returning a phone phone calls. If I don't learn to sit, be with it, and express those feelings, what I will do is instead project my anger or frustration or disappointment onto the people I'm talking with. So in order to open to other people, I have to first heal my own wounding.
that means I have to find out, find people who are skillful at listening to my disclosures. Now, another factor is to move from the implicit to cognitive, which means when we start to feel an impulse to believe that we know what states other people are in, uh, to question it. Before we follow our intuition, to make sure that we ask questions, take in what's being signaled. Really important. The Buddha said, for those of us who struggle understanding the minds of others, we should spend time observing our own minds and noting how our moods change. Now, why does the Buddha ask that? Well, it's, there's a very important point he's making. You see, we're all aware that we go through different moods in life. You're probably aware that sometimes you've been happy, sometimes sad, sometimes you've been frustrated, sometimes angry. But guess what? We humans have a real tendency, me, everybody, we all have a tendency to write off other people as being either angry people, critical people, unhappy people. We, in other words, we categorize people and we write them off. And we close to the idea that everyone is constantly in just as much flux as we are. So even though at work there might be somebody who acts like a real schnook, a pain in the arse, really frustrating. But if we relate to them with the assumption that they're always that way, then we close off to the times when they literally aren't in that state of mind. And even though it takes more effort to question our convictions about others, and even though we might be really, really sure that we're right, it's always worth checking, investigating, being willing to investigate to see if really what's going on. Now, that said, if there are people in your life who are unsafe, people who are always triggering, people who are associated with abuse or are unsafe, you don't have to mentalize that person. So you're allowed to keep your distance, but if you do want to have a relationship or any working interaction with someone, then we should at least open to the possibility that all other people have shifting mind states, as much shifting as we do. And finally, the key to cognitive mentalizing that really makes us connect deeply and richly with others is always remembering that we can be wrong. That's such an important realization. To not trust the assumptions and the intuitions, but to remember that uh, what has been determined is that to understand others is not an innate skill. Many people never learn it. Many people never take the time to open, to learn how to investigate, to put aside their own stresses, to work through their own emotional states, to really connect deeply means we have to put effort into it and we have to constantly investigate our assumptions so that we really see where the people, because if we 
assume that we're right, we will act towards them based on those assumptions and very often will pigeonhole other people into responding as if as if our assumptions are correct and will trap others into relational uh, dramas that are ultimately unsuccessful. That's all I got. Hope there's something of value somewhere in there worth thinking about. I thank you for listening. We're going to bring both the body and the mind into a nice alignment for meditation. So let's do just uh, three breaths to start the process of relaxing the body. Take a nice, long, deep, full in-breath through the nose. Lift the shoulders up to the ears, touching the ears if you'd like with the shoulders. Hold them and then breathe out and lower the shoulders. And if you feel it's appropriate, Gently tuck your shoulders a little bit further back than you normally carry them so that your chest opens up. And the next breath, tucking in the belly, tight, 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 tight. And then hold and then breathe out and soften the belly. You don't really need to worry how you appear here. So a nice soft round belly. And then finally, third breath, squinching the muscles in the face, the arms, the legs, the buttocks. Tighten, 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 hold, and then release. And now take a survey of the body. If there's anything you'd like to adjust, do so. You might notice that uh, your clothes feel too tight, or you maybe there's something about your seat that's not sustainable. Throughout the course of the meditation, if you find that there's... Uh, pain that develops generally in the legs or in the back, and you have to reposition yourself, the key is just to do it in a way that doesn't create sound that will disrupt the people sitting next to you. Of course, too, if we move around frequently, we'll render any ability of the mind to find peace unlikely. So the goal is to try to settle in, relax into your upright position, setting an intention to first, and this is how we're going to get the mind also in alignment with our practice, setting an intention to be very patient with yourself, very forgiving, very accepting of whatever your experience is, both internal and external. Internal in terms of your mind might be either agitated or it might be sleepy or might be distracted. An external you might hear occasionally sounds or something might distract you externally and just be accepting with that as well, trying not to add any more judgment, criticism, evaluation. If you think of it, 
<clears throat> Part of what we're doing here is we're realigning our awareness from being so externally fixated during the rest of our lives where we're constantly looking for peace of mind or a sense of fulfillment externally out in the world to the point that we undervalue all of the really quite powerful feelings of tranquility, serenity, joy that can be cultivated from within. And what we're also doing is we're making a transition from the first part of the day where very often we're spending our lives fixing, solving, getting things accomplished, thinking in terms of the future, dealing with conflicts or issues. And we're getting out of that mind and we're transitioning into a mind that's quite different. We're trying to get into a mind that's very present, not thinking about the future or the past, a mind that's not trying to fix or solve anything, a mind that's not trying to correct, a mind that's just opening to life as it is right now without the feeling that there's anything missing in us. There is nothing missing from you. Right now you have everything you need to cultivate some ease and peace in your life. So for the first silent part of the meditation what we'll do is just cultivate what's called an anchor. An anchor is something that keeps your mind grounded in the present so that your awareness doesn't float too far away from the present moment and being open and available to what's happening right here and now. So what are these anchors? There are many you can choose from. You can, of course, work with the sensations of the breath. It's good to start out a breath-focused meditation by counting the inhalations and exhalations. One on the in, two on the out. Three on the next in-breath, four on the next out-breath, five. And then starting to count back down four on the next exhalation. So you're counting from one to five and back down. One, three, and five always on the in-breath. Now, the breath is not the only anchor that you can work with. If you don't want to focus on the breath, you can simply sit and just listen to the sounds of the rooms with your eyes closed or looking at the ground in front of you and just allow the sounds to arise and pass 
trying not to visualize what creates a sound. Just relaxing the body when unpleasant sounds arise. So staying with receiving the sounds of the room. Another concentration object is just visualizing a place that you feel safe. Just holding the image in your mind, it could be a room or a setting outdoors by a river or beach. And just try to visualize that environment with the greatest detail. <clears throat> or finally, just Think of a very simple phrase that suggests an aspiration for peace. I love you, keep going. Just using that very simple phrase or another phrase that you prefer. Repeating it as often as you need to keep intrusive thoughts at bay. And when you find that a thought has snuck through and hooked and baited your, or baited and hooked your awareness, and pulled you away from the present, just feel good that you've become aware, very gently, patiently, bringing your awareness back. Nothing to judge, nothing to criticize, just feeling good about your practice.
So for the second part, it should be slightly shorter. Allow your concentration object to be released. You no longer have to extend or expend any mental energy keeping it in mind. And just allow your mind to stay open and spacious and aware of all the sensations that are available to you. Right now there's the sound of the room. There still is the sensation of the breath. There's the feeling of clothes and the body. The contact sensations you're making with the ground. The feeling of hands or arms resting on legs. There might be lights flickering behind your eyelids. There might be other random body sensations associated with feelings. Feelings of anxiousness might be a tightness in the belly or in the base of the throat or in the shoulders. Feelings of tiredness might be a sense of sluggishness in the body, a heaviness. Feelings of joy might be a sense of an energy of elation felt in the chest and in the muscles of the face. Anger might be in a locked jaw, tight muscles in the arms and the forehead. And finally, you have the basic energy levels of the mind itself. Does the mind settle easily or is it jumpy? Are you distracted or present? Does the mind feel very open and spacious or does it feel very small, claustrophobic? So this is your baseline setting right now. And as we move into the second part, just allow whatever thoughts appear to be known and then freeze them. Don't push them away or continue feeding them. Just know what the thought is that wants your attention and see how the rest of your mind and body reacts to this thought. For instance, if you start to have a thought about what to do with the rest of your evening or about an unpleasant conversation from earlier in the day, just note that it's a thought about either of those two topics and then freeze the thought and then see what did this thought do to my breath? Is it heavier or shallower? Is my body tenser or more relaxed? Is my mind suddenly more contracted or spacious? What are the feeling tones in the body? Is the body more guarded or more easeful? Just see how every thought doesn't just exist in the mind as an image and some words, but also 
comes with body states, feelings, moods, how each thought affects the rest of our experience.
All right, so we're going to begin the very gradual transition from the meditation. And after every meditation, what I like to do is to spend some moments reflecting on the virtue of my practice, whether or not it was an easy meditation just cultivating the ability to drop all of the busyness, overscheduling, accomplishment agendas of our outside life and being able to spend some time learning how to develop kindness and compassion within. It's a very important practice, not just in terms of all the benefits for health and well-being, which have been well established. Studies show that people who meditate not only are happier and more fulfilled, but also the quality of their relationships improve. So it's not just for our benefit, it's for the benefit of all beings we encounter because to have some peace within means we'll be less reactive, less impulsive, more settled, less imbalanced in our lives. Also, it doesn't exploit or harm anyone. It's always available. You can't get addicted to it. Well, in the bad sense of addiction. So it's a blameless practice. Finally, when you hear the sound of the bowl and it's time to open the eyes, just take the entire length of the sound to slowly open your eyes so that you can reintegrate sight, which is a very dominant sense, with all the other inner awareness that you've cultivated. If you just open your eyes quickly and look around, all the visuals will generally push to the sidelines all the awareness of the breath and body and feeling. So you want to reintegrate sight rather than allow it to take over. <clears throat> 